0: This is the Public Radio Hour, our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features produced in the studios of listener-supported 89.3 WLRH. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. On this show, we place a lot of value on the power of storytelling and how it helps connect diverse communities and cultures. Telling and listening to stories helps us understand why things are the way they are and helps us remember what's gone right and wrong and reminds us of hard-earned lessons that we may otherwise be doomed to repeat. In the next hour, our three guests will help bring some depth and context to Huntsville's civil rights history. NASA's acting chief historian, Dr. Brian Odom, will talk with me about Werner von Braun's complicated legacy and his important role in pushing back against segregation in his quest to help mankind land on the moon. Historic Huntsville Foundation's Donna Castellano has been on a quest to revive and retell the forgotten stories of six African-American women who played an important role in the battle for women's voting rights. She'll talk with producer Katie Gannaway about that. But first, let's meet Dr. Beth Paulton the granddaughter of Alabama civil rights hero, Dr. Sonny Herford III, who in September of 1963, stood against a mob of segregationist and armed state troopers trying to block his six-year-old son's entry to Fifth Avenue Elementary School here in Huntsville. With the help of a federal court order, he soon after pushed those school doors open, allowing his son to become the first black child to integrate schools in Alabama. Dr. Paulton is also an assistant professor at Syracuse University's School of Information Studies and also a member of the advisory board on the Laura Bush Foundation for America's Libraries. And locally here in Huntsville, she's the director of Rocket City Civil Rights, which has some exciting things happening this month. We started our discussion with some vocabulary. Dr. Paulton, reading your bio, it says you're involved in projects regarding epistemicide which is defined as a war on knowledge and the systematic destruction of existing knowledge. It's a word that certainly resonates a lot as we think about African American history this month. So tell us, why is this such a passion for you?
1: Yeah, this is a really great question. So I have a background in library and information science. I was a librarian. And I think, you know, librarians as a profession, we've deemed ourselves with the task of organizing everybody's information and making everybody's information available. So we actually get to decide what information is worthy of keeping and what information isn't. And what I see in our library practices is that we often exclude stories from our collections, and then those stories don't become a part of our larger conversations around history. And um, I think, for example, about the state archives here in Alabama. If you search them, my dad desegregated schools in Alabama. If you look at their digital archive, they only have one exhibition related to that. So how are we supposed to understand our history if our departments of archives and histories aren't actually collecting all of
0: the stories?
1: What does that mean for us?
0: So how do you go about making that judgment call? Because that's a big yeah. thing here at our, our, at this radio station is the art and the power of storytelling. Uh, and like you said, when those stories aren't told and retold, they are very easily lost. So how sure. do you go about making judgment calls on what to keep, what to filter.
1: It's it's tough. So librarians would tell you you have a collection development policy and you write out what stories are important for us to keep, what areas are we going to focus on. So our organization Rocket City Civil Rights, it's pretty obvious from our title that we focus on civil rights in the Rocket City. That also means Madison County for us. But then we decided it doesn't mean Scottsboro. So somewhere we had to define a limit because people will come to us with stories of Scottsboro. If it's not related to Huntsville, if it's not related to Madison County, it's outside of our scope. So understanding what your scope is is important and who your community is. Um, And I think the other part of that is making sure that we go back and get the stories that were potentially going to lose soon. So one of the things you'll see on our website is a lot of interviews and oral histories with our elders so that they can tell their stories and so that we can have those in the future and future generations can go back and learn those stories as well.
0: So tell us a little bit more about this, uh, about your group, Rocket City Civil Rights. Uh, How did the group get started? And I feel like you've touched on the service mission already but tell yeah. us about the service mission.
1: Yeah, so our goal is to archive, advocate and assist in social reform through our educational programs and community conversations. And so we'd like to come into your into our community. Sometimes we have talks at like places like Old Town Beer Exchange or sometimes we're doing workshops at places like Hudson Alpha. We also want to work within the elementary schools and make sure our local stories and history is being known. And and really we're we're rooted in understanding the contributions that Huntsville made in the civil rights movement. And this group started um, with Kelly Hamlin. She was writing her uh, master's thesis here at UAH, and she realized that Huntsville was part of so many firsts. The Army was integrated here. Public parks in the state of Alabama was integrated here first. Restaurants in the state of Alabama were integrated here first. And of course, our public schools were integrated here first. But when you look at the state-level conversation around civil rights, we always talk about Selma and Birmingham and Montgomery when Huntsville was really a leader. And so Kelly was very surprised growing up in Huntsville. She didn't learn any of that in school. And so she focused her thesis. um, I want to say that it's called Let Freedom Ring, but... I read too much to be (laughs) exact about titles, but she wanted to um, write about the civil rights movement here. And so a lot of our work is stemming from that research project that she started and thinking about how can we expand this and bring the community into these stories.
0: And uh, dear listeners, as we'll hear later in this episode of the Public Radio Hour, uh, Huntsville played a big role in the integration of NASA during those times as as well. So uh, Rocket City Civil Rights, uh, as part of Black History Month and your other activities, you've launched a driving tour of various important civil rights locations around the community. So tell us a little bit about this driving tour. It will take you past... uh, A number of different sites, including sites of Huntsville segregated movie theaters, places where civil rights sit-ins were held at the former locations of Sears and Woolworth, and past the site of Fifth Avenue Elementary School, where your grandfather helped his son become the first child to integrate schools in Alabama. So tell our listeners how they can take part in this driving tour, and maybe a couple of the stops that sort of stick out to you that are important to you.
1: Yeah, so so if you go to our website, rocketcitycivilrights.org— you can find our driving tour there, and it's it's through a program called Clio, so you can download that, and it'll actually map you around whether you want to walk or drive, and it'll give you an overview of the history that took part in these places. One of the things we've been working on lately is to add images, to add interviews, to add sound clips, so as you're driving around, you can actually experience some of the history that's happened there. One of the big problems, and you kind of mentioned this in the introduction, is the former site of Fifth Avenue new school. We've done a lot in Huntsville where we've paved over a lot of these locations that were a major part of our black history in Huntsville. So we're working on developing QR codes at these locations as well so people can walk up and scan with their phones and then actually hear interviews, see stories, see video clips of what actually happened so that we can connect people with the history and the actual location. Um, You asked about, you know, my favorite site, I have to say Fifth Avenue (laughs) because of my dad. Um, You know, but other parts of it, I think about um, Virgil Howe's uh, doctor's office and the medical presence that was there in Huntsville because of course, black community members didn't have the same healthcare access. So really thinking about um, where the hospital is now, where the doctor's offices were and kind of that connection around our history as well.
0: So tell us a story from the driving tour. Is there a story you could perhaps share with us that, that you think uh, maybe people don't know about. You know, the, the sit-ins at Sears and Woolworth, I, I think that's one thing that is easily forgotten. Sure. You know, like when these sites disappear, so does the story in a sense.
1: I have a great story for you. So – so Huntsville was involved in a lot of sit-ins, and we had a lot of student protesters from Oakwood and a m that were involved. And in. it was really important because, like, people with jobs couldn't get arrested, right? So, like, we needed the students to kind of do that dangerous work. Um, and But what was happening is – and,
0: and to back up, mm-hmm. why couldn't people with jobs get arrested? Well,
1: why? yeah, that's, this is a great – this that's a great question. So there were economic threats – for black people who were involved in the civil rights movement, not unlike what we see today, um, but if you were participating in the civil rights movement and your boss didn't like it, you could get fired. Mm -hmm. And so you had people who I think when they started for school desegregation, for example, we had 36 families in Huntsville who signed up to have their kids integrate. When it came down to integration day, we had four students who were still involved in the process. And that was through economic pressures, through threats of violence and those kinds of things. So, yes, there were those threats of violence, but economic pressure was very important. And, you know, when I look to who got to lead our civil rights movement here in town, I think about my grandfather, who was a doctor and had his own practice. Dr. John Cashin, who was a dentist and had his own practice. Lots of the women who were beauticians and had their own salons, had their own financial independence, and they weren't beholden to someone else telling them what they could do.
0: Okay, so I'll sidetrack your story Mm -hmm. there for that, that, for but that, that background. W- but that
1: was good. That was great. It's yeah. an important part. So, but what we weren't getting from having the student protesters, we weren't getting attention from the media. There was almost a blackout in the Huntsville Times around what was happening. Now, the Black Mirror, the, not Black Mirror, that's a show, but the Mirror was a newspaper in Huntsville. They were covering the stories, but we needed everybody to know. And so the Community Service Committee came up with a fairly radical idea of what if we get some prominent women Arrested? What if we get the wives of doctors arrested? And so Joan Cashin, Dr. Cashin's wife, my grandmother, Martha Herford, and Frances Sims, who was a student who had been arrested a few times before so she could kind of walk the ladies through what was going to happen, um, Joan and her little baby Cheryl and my grandmother, who was six months pregnant at the time, went down to Walgreens, ordered a cheeseburger. What was Walgreens? Walgreens. Uh-huh. Ordered a cheeseburger and got served a warrant and, and and got arrested. And when the the videos and the images of a pregnant woman getting sentenced to go to jail for trying to eat a cheeseburger garnered national attention. And it was because, you know, it was the same kind of sit-in, the same kind of protest, but because of who got arrested, because now it was a middle-class woman, now it was a woman that was prominent in our community and one that was pregnant, it got so much attention. And of course, you know... (laughs) It was my grandma, so of course that's that's my favorite story.
0: So how, how did you stay connected to that story? Is that something that your family uh, told and retold and passed down?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've always been raised to be um, really thoughtful and grateful about education and understanding that my educational opportunities were um, – you know, they happened because of what my parents and my grandparents sacrificed and went through to make sure that I could go to public schools here in Alabama and or attend the schools that I wanted to attend. And um, so that hasn't been lost on me. And these stories are our family stories, you know, sitting around the house and hearing my grandparents tell their stories. So these have really been embedded within me.
0: This is the Public Radio Hour, and we're talking with Dr. Beth Paulton an assistant professor at Syracuse University's School of Information Studies. She also works with the Laura Bush Foundation for America's Libraries, and here in Huntsville, she's the director of Rocket City Civil Rights. So later this month, um, you'll also be re-releasing for free a documentary produced in part by your grandfather, Dr. Sonny Hereford III, titled A Civil Rights Journey, and that explores Huntsville's civil rights movement. So tell us a little bit about this documentary, how people can get in touch with it.
1: Yeah, great. So um, this documentary has been around for a couple of decades. It was uh, made in 1999, and, um, but it hasn't been released online. So I've spent the last few weeks digitizing it at a high quality and make sure make, making sure it had captions, which was not easy, because everybody had super southern accents, so going through and making sure that that was right was really important, so that it'd be accessible. But it's going to be located on our YouTube page. You'll also be able to reach it at Rocket City Civil Rights. We'll make sure to focus it on our share it on our social medias: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, but what I think is really important about this is, you know, this used to be a DVD. It used to be a VHS. So either you had this resource physical copy, yeah. or you didn't. Right. And now we can make it available online. And so hopefully that will allow school teachers to share this documentary with their class this month's parents to share this documentary with their students, with their children this month. You know, often we think about these stories as happening so long ago. But my dad is in his mid 60s, right? He's not an old guy. And so for most of us, our parents remember this or our grandparents remember these times. So making sure that, like, we are not thinking about this as forever ago. And um, I'm really excited to have the DVD, uh, the, the video available online. Um, and I hope that that's going to lead to some more community conversations and to see this embedded more in our local school curriculums.
0: Well, and it's also really important to consider the technology and put things where people – are seeing and how they're listening. Right. We were having a conversation just yesterday about who has a CD player right. anymore, you know, so right. who has a DVD player. People don't watch like that. So that'll right. be really exciting for that to come out on uh, RocketCityCivilRights.org. You'll also be releasing some digital uh, exhibits in the next few months. What can we expect from that?
1: Yeah, so we, we're lucky enough to get a grant from the Alabama Humanities Alliance. And this grant is focusing on the story of the three brave women so it's Joan Cashin, Martha Hurford and Frances Sims who I just mentioned and their story of going to get arrested and everything that led up to that decision and kind of the media exposure after and um So our grant is going to focus on telling the story in April. It'll mark the 60th anniversary of the women getting arrested on the way to integrating restaurants. And so we're going to release some interviews with um, women and uh, different primary documents that are related to this. My grandfather was a videographer, so he has video and photographs that haven't been shared before. So we're working on building some digital timelines and also kind of connecting the Huntsville story to the larger civil rights. Story so that it's kind of put in context a little bit more for us.
0: That sounds really exciting. I mean, is this footage that no no one has seen yet? So this this is is brand new content. This is
1: brand new content that nobody has seen. You know, um, as an archivist and as a librarian, there are just boxes and boxes of documents and videos and photographs. I opened one box at my grandmother's house. I took the lid off and it's just a picture of them with Muhammad Ali and and his brother in London. And I'm like, what is this life? And so there's just such a rich history there. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that with the public.
0: That sounds really cool and really exciting. So uh, Dr. Paulton, we appreciate you stopping by and visiting today. Let's close by talking about this idea of cultural competence, which is one of your main areas of research. So first of all, kind of dig us in a little bit here. What is cultural competence? And in your opinion, what is the most appropriate and the most effective way to teach this to younger generations?
1: Yeah, so this is a really great question. Um, One of the things I think about as a librarian is that I am not going to be like everybody that walks through my library door. People are going to have different experiences. They're going to practice different religions. They're going to have different social views. So how can I, as someone who is not a part of that community or not a part of that identity, try to work with someone? And so for me, it involves kind of three major things, to keep it simple. Um, one, learning about yourself, understanding your own community, understanding your own identity and values. Two, learning about other folks, communities, and then three, starting to work together for us to solve social issues and and, and working together towards dialogue. Dialogue is an important part of this. Dialogue means that we don't have to agree, but we try to work to understand. Um, So much of the conversation that happens, I think, in the United States right now is a discussion where we are trying to break each other down and pull someone over to my side of point of view. It's about a debate when we really should be dialoguing. And so how do we focus on dialogue within our communities, within our libraries, and and working to have kids um, have hard conversations that many of us have been taught not to have in the past? To me, that is the way. Um, How can we kindly have these conversations? How can we be passionate about the things we care about, but also allow ourselves to be flexible and influenced by the things other people are passionate about. Um, And I I think that's part of the key. And then the last step for me is how do we work collectively together to try to affect the policies and the practices that lead to systemic equalities. So yes, I want to think about myself. And yes, I want to think about interacting with you. But it is important that we are able to get together and work on the policies, the systems and structures that maybe are um, holding some of us back.
0: In your work and your studies and your work as a librarian, are you seeing, uh, and this is just your opinion here, uh, are you seeing a different capacity? And the ability to do this and the ability to consider and think about and sort of put aside the things that might make you feel uncomfortable. Are you seeing a difference uh, in the capacity between younger and older generations to do this? Are you, are you hopeful that the, the younger generations, the, the, the people coming up, uh, will be able to have a better grasp on it?
1: Yeah, one of the things my grandfather says in the documentary is that he's optimistic about Huntsville. And I can say that too. I am optimistic about the young generation in Huntsville.
0: That was Dr. Beth Paulton, director of Rocket City Civil Rights, also a granddaughter of Alabama civil rights hero Dr. Sonny Herford III, who in 1963 stood strong against segregationists so his son could become the first black child to integrate schools in Alabama. Find out more about Huntsville's civil rights driving tour and other things we discussed online at rocketcitycivilrights.org. You're listening to the Public Radio Hour, produced by listener-supported 89.3 WLRH Huntsville Public Radio. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. In this hour, we're exploring Huntsville's civil rights history, which has deep ties to civil rights history across Alabama and across America. An important stand in the fight for women's right to vote happened here, made in part by six African-American women who until recently may have been all but forgotten but thanks to the historic Huntsville Foundation and the efforts of its executive director, Donna Castellano, that story was memorialized in October with a historical marker and then again this month with a presentation coming up on February 16th. Here's producer Katie Ganaway speaking with Donna Castellano about the legacies of Mary Wood Benford, Ellen Scruggs Brandon, India Leslie Herndon, Lou Bertha Johnson, Dora Fackler Lowry, and Celia Horton Love.
2: One of the things that the women all have in common is that they were members of Lakeside Methodist Church, but they also were part of a very vibrant uh, intellectual community that was also in Huntsville for black people at this period, uh, that was really fueled by Alabama A&M University and Mm -hmm. William Hooper Council. Mm -hmm. So it's the same phenomenon that we've really seen throughout Alabama and Huntsville history, where you have a small community and you would think, well, they're isolated from the rest of the world. But no, they're not, because there's something called letters and words and newspapers. Mm And of course, uh, Dr. Council was bringing uh, fabulous speakers in to Alabama A&M, and then he would share those with the black community. So they were really part of the developments that were occurring nationwide in the black community they were experiencing here. For example, with the suffrage movement, with William Hooper Council, he would bring speakers in and uh, lectures and musicians. And so there were wonderful concerts that took place uh, in Huntsville that, that they benefited from. So they had a very vibrant uh inter- intellectually active social life.
3: I do want to talk about the voting rights that were taken away from, as you said, uh, one hundred eighty thousand black men, and that's in the state constitution that favored white supremacy at the time. And you talked about in the in the last interview that we had, you talked about how these six black women sort of banded together, went to the courthouse steps, and you know wanted to get their voting rights. Have you learned anything beyond that of of how they were able to do that? Well,
2: I think the the fascinating thing is about being a historian, you know, you sort of look at things collectively, and then after a while you stand back and you start breaking things down into component parts. And so um, one of the interesting things about this is when I started doing a timeline of the women, is that they were actually born in two very different periods. So, So
3: they would have had different challenges
2: as well. That is exactly right. They had different challenges, and they also had They were heirs of an earlier era. And when I say that, I'm speaking specifically of Mrs. Benford and Mrs. Brandon and Mrs. Love. But specifically, Mrs. Benford and Mrs. Brandon were born immediately after emancipation. So they grew up through Reconstruction up through when they hit the 1901 Constitution and during that period – Black men had voting rights. And it's not just that they had individual voting rights, it's that they had collective political power Mm -hmm. so that they could sort of thwart some of the worst impulses of white supremacy. But after the 1901 Constitution, that protection was gone. Mm -hmm. And so they were literally living in a very different world. And the women who came of age after the 1901 Constitution, who also voted in 1920, were Mrs. Herndon, Mrs. Johnson, and Mrs. Lowry, and so their generation was more geared towards how do we take what we know, the resources that we've been given, which is some degree of independence and self-reliance, and build on that in order to, to, to carry the seeds forward of what would be the civil rights generation. It's really a fascinating uh, study in leadership of how one group of people, uh, although they're part of the same black community, but they're, they're older, how they adapted to the situation in 1901 and how they set the groundwork for the generation that would come after them that would take those resources and uh, and build the independence and also begin to challenge and resist some of the, the worst tenets of, of white supremacy as well.
3: So going back to the time period where black individuals in Huntsville still had their voting rights, there was somebody who came in and helped with the uh, black women's suffrage movement in Huntsville. And that was Mrs. Frances Ellen Watkins. Can you tell us a little bit about her and her work? Because she was a black author, abolitionist and suffragist.
2: Yes. So when I was here before, I had always thought that Mary Benford had brought the seeds of suffrage down from her time at Howard University. And going back and reading through newspaper articles, I found where Mrs. Watkins had visited in 1895, in the same year that Susan B. Anthony had visited Huntsville. Uh, Mrs. Anthony came in February, Mrs. Watkins came in December. So it's a nice little book in there. And she had come to see uh, Dr. Council. And when people People found out about it when the black community found out about it, they persuaded Mr. Council to allow her to speak to the churches and to literary groups. And so uh, she spoke at Lakeside Methodist Church. She spoke to a literary society, and then she had a woman's only meeting as well. And she spoke to the importance of black voting rights. She um, was a, a contemporary and a friend of Ida Wells Barnett and of the other great black women that had was credited with really kicking off black suffrage in 1895. And so it's fascinating to see that she was here in Huntsville and that at the very least, that uh, Ellen Brandon was there at those meetings, and I suspect other women were as well, that later uh, would go on to vote, but that this is where mm-hmm. we can truly say that something significant, when you're looking at making those dots and connecting those dots, which again is important to a historian, that's definitely a pivotal event that we can look at.
3: What sort of ideals did Mrs. Watkins bring when she did come here and talk to other black women in Huntsville?
2: So she was very much a part of the Lifting As We Climb movement. As we uh, mentioned
3: in the last yeah. interview, that, yes.
2: that that's exactly right, where in order to be successful and to survive and to thrive, you had two obligations. The first was to lift one another up, mm-hmm. uh, and the second was is that you still had an obligation to continue to improve yourself. And so it's really a story of black activism and a black cultural pride as well. And that black women had to have voting rights if they were to protect their community. It's basically the same argument that white women were using, that we have to have voting rights because we have to be protected and we have to protect uh, our community and also... Uh, that this is what's necessary in a democratic government, it was the same argument only coming out of the mouth of a black woman. And she was a black woman speaking to black women.
3: And uh, I think it took root in their heart and it helped grow. At any point in Huntsville, was there an integration of black and white women trying to get their vote?
2: I would be very surprised if that happened. In my reading of white suffragists, whenever they speak about universal voting rights or the impact that the passage of the 19th amendment would have they make it clear that the literacy clauses and the property clauses of the 19th amendment would keep others out and by the
3: others i think we can probably infer who they meant by that Another person that I think as of note that you've told me about is Shelby Johnson, and he was a black businessman in the 1940s. Fast forwarding a little bit, mm-hmm. he triumphed over the city of Huntsville on a zoning issue. Can you tell us about that case? What that story is?
2: So, Mr. Johnson was the husband of Lou Bertha Johnson, who's one of our six women, and they were oh, they were younger. Mrs. Johnson was born in 1895, so she was 25 years old when she got to vote in 1920. She and her husband started a dry cleaning company in downtown Huntsville, black-owned business. And by 1940, 1945, they were very successful. And so he wanted to move out and start a business on Franklin Street. And he purchased the land and went forward. And as he proceeded to do that, and he had gotten a permit from the city of Huntsville, when some white residents nearby protested the fact that there was going to be a, a cleaning plant there, the city of Huntsville revoked the building permit Mm -hmm. rather than accept this Uh, Mr. Shelby fought it, uh, and he fought it all the way to the Alabama Supreme Court. His attorney was Arthur Davis, who some of your readers may recognize. He is a civil rights attorney who helped Arthurine Lucy and her case against the University of Alabama. Well, they prevailed against the city of Huntsville. Mm -hmm. In 1947, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled on behalf of Mr. Johnson against the city of Huntsville. And if you drive by Franklin Avenue, Franklin Street today, you will see his building, 801. One Franklin that's still there. That building is a symbol of this black man's commitment fight where possible for his civil rights,
3: a triumph in Black history. Here I think it. I
2: I absolutely see that as being so. And he was um, back in the the late 1930s, 1940s. He had written an article, uh, an editorial to the Huntsville Times. You know, sort of tweaking people's noses that it's a shame that that white people are enjoying a swimming pool and that the mm-hmm. and that the black people don't even have a place to you know to, to cool down mm-hmm. on a hot summer day. He was constantly doing things like that to where I have rights and I'm not going to back down and the thing that I love so much about his story is that when he died in the 1950s he had white ministers preside at his funeral, mm-hmm. and he also had honorary pallbearers who were members of the white community as well. So even though he was advocating for his rights, he still maintained positive relationships with the white community, and I think that those were relationships of mutual respect.
3: I also wanted to ask about his involvement in getting black voters registered at that time. Can you talk about those efforts, how they were conceived and how they were carried out? And I'm also curious if uh, Lou Bertha Johnson, his wife, was involved in that as well. Uh,
2: Yes. So in 1945, uh, before actually World War II ended, there was an effort by a group of upstanding black citizens. That's what they called themselves. That's not my language. But they wanted to register to vote, and they were testing the registration system. So they pulled together those that they knew that would meet the qualifications that were clearly literate that clearly met the, the property qualifications mm. and went to register and they were given the runaround. quite frankly by county registrars well rather than walk away they wrote a letter to the Huntsville Times and said this is a list of people who we registered to vote uh, we were not allowed or we were we were denied we're still waiting to hear so do not think that the black community it does not want their voting rights we're being denied our voting rights uh, his children were part of that effort, as was John Cashin, as was Carrie Benford, who is the sister-in-law of Mary Wood Benford. There were very prominent names that were listed as part of that, and I found it fascinating that they were doing this in 1945, before the end of World War II, because they clearly thought that they had purchased their right through their support. They were also, all throughout the, the war, they were uh, raising um, money for to purchase war bonds. They were raising money for the Red Cross that they were citizens, patriotic citizens in every sense of the word, and that they believed that they had that right to vote. It's very humbling when you read that.
3: Those struggles to be seen as an equal to white people at the time as well, um, getting their right to vote, that struggle sort of continued into the 60s. Um, and that's the era of you know the Civil Rights Act and the, the Voting Rights Act. And especially affecting black people here in the South – they were also required to pay poll taxes, take literacy tests, as you mentioned before. Um, and that was especially in more rural areas, um, areas of people who the majority were illiterate. Can you talk about how the groundbreaking actions of black leaders in 1920s through 1940s Huntsville, such as Mr. Johnson and his wife, are linked to the activism in the 60s? So
2: I think. That one of the first things that we have to realize when we're looking at what does black activism mean in the 1920s when we're talking about yes. lifting as we climb, what did that mean? It meant education, And so you see a serious commitment to education in the black community, and you see that again when we talked about CEO Love, who had donated land for the Rosenwald School. One of the primary ways that you were going to get the right to vote is you had to be able to read and write. And I think you also see that in the activism, laying the seeds for activism in the black community through their uh, very entrepreneurial spirit in order to start small businesses uh, so that they had the resources that they need to own land to be uh, – to have have the, the money to pay the poll taxes but more importantly than that to have the independence from the white community to so that they could be activists without having their revenue cut from them. That was a serious challenge. So I see that all of the things that these that these activists were doing that the that this tight knit black community were doing in order to build self reliance, independence, to become educated uh, to, um, to to develop a sense of their own identity, which they had always had, but that was completely and totally independent of white Alabamians' opinion of them. They knew who they were, and that was the biggest weapon that they had against. White supremacy. If you know who you are, no one else can ever tell you who you are, if you know that in your soul. And I think that that sense of pride is probably the most important tool that they were bequeathed by uh, by these early uh, activists, by these early voters
3: and they were laying the foundation for what came in the 1960s can you talk a little bit about how that affected prominent black people in Huntsville of the 1960s so I think
2: the, the best example of how you see the activism of the suffragists coming forward was, is going to be through the Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry where you have someone whose family was committed to this who had voted who had established that level of independence that we're talking about uh, uh, Mr. Lowry uh, owned multiple businesses his mother Dora Lowry was a teacher, so she was very much engaged in terms of of educating black students, and then that becomes the work of their son, the Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry, who takes all of this and then goes out and is prepared and equipped Uh, And has the funding necessary in order to take on the civil rights movement with, you know, uh, Reverend Martin Luther King. So there is a direct connection that's coming out of these six black women and a national civil rights movement.
3: Mm -hmm. And even back in January last month, um, our current Congress reviewed a new voting rights bill um, that would have helped ease voting restrictions, which are very much felt here in the South with people of color that was blocked by the Senate. So what can we learn from our voting past here in Huntsville that can be applied to make progress toward the future?
2: When I look back at this history and I see the effects of that 1901 constitution, every single vote that's removed, it's not just that vote, it's a cumulative impact of that vote in one election, but also over time. And you experience a political death when your right to vote is removed you have no ability to influence a political system and you are literally at the whims of whatever those who retain the voting right decide what your future will be and so that is why this history to me is so important Uh, everyone has an obligation to vote but we also have an obligation to be those activists to ensure that other people have their right to vote and that we work together and it's everyone. It's not one political party. It has to be a collective thing because that's the way this country's set up. And if we want the people's will enacted, then the people have to have the right to vote.
0: That was Katie Ganaway talking with Executive Director of the Historic Huntsville Foundation, Donna Castellano. You can catch Donna's presentation, Hidden Figures No Longer, Six Black Women Who Made History, on Wednesday, February 16th at 6 p.m. at the Huntsville Area Association of Realtors Building on Monroe Street in downtown Huntsville. Find more details on the Historic Huntsville Foundation Facebook page and online at historichuntsville.org. You're listening to the Public Radio Hour, produced by listener-supported WLRH Huntsville Public Radio. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. In this hour, we're exploring Huntsville's civil rights history. And when you talk about major figures in Huntsville's history, it's hard not to think about rocket pioneer and the first director of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, Bernard von Braun, whose relentless pursuit of his dream to land on the moon played a critical role in making the rocket city what it is today. Many people also remember that von Braun's dream had an early connection to the Nazi party, where he helped build V-2 rockets during World War II that were used as weapons and were responsible for thousands of deaths. But did you know he also played a major role in the civil rights movement as he led integration efforts at Marshall Space Flight Center in order to keep his rocket program alive in Huntsville? Those efforts also brought new resources and opportunities to historically black colleges and universities, including Alabama A&M, and also created new pathways for all those students. To help us dig a little deeper, I sat down with NASA's acting chief historian, Dr. Brian Odom, who has co-edited a book titled NASA and the Long Civil Rights Movement. The connection between NASA and the Civil Rights Movement was also the focus of his doctoral studies. So I know, Brian, as part of your studies, you conducted a lot of interviews with a lot of people who worked with NASA. Tell us a little bit about gathering those interviews and how it shaped your present day view of NASA and its connections to the Civil Rights Movement.
4: Yeah, that's a great question because I think, you know, talking to these people who actually had this experience is is one thing. You know, we, we think we know a history. We read about the Civil Rights Movement. We know the classical aspects of the Civil Rights Movement you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, what's happening in Birmingham in 1963, but you know, you never really apply it to just these other areas of life, you know, the, the work workaday experience, you know, and the edu- people's path through their education, uh, coming to work for a place like NASA, so so going in and talking, uh, interviewing folks, and finding out what their experience was like was really eye-opening, because these things do did have a huge impact on their ability to gain access to opportunity, economic
0: opportunities. Uh, And so there was a, it, it was just really interesting. So who, who were a lot of these people? These weren't well-known, uh, high-profile people. These were people working kind of behind the scenes, doing things that people don't maybe connect with the, the big picture?
4: Yeah. One in particular was Arthur Hewlett. Uh, you know, Arthur was – he dated back to, you know, the earlier time in, uh, at, at Redstone before NASA came. So he had been working for the Army when they were developing rockets back then. He worked in the wind tunnels, right? And he talked about that experience in the 1950s in Alabama. So pre what we would consider classical civil rights. Uh, And he talked about, you know, going into these segregated, uh, you know, lunchrooms and social segregation that came along with that. Uh, You know, fast forward a little bit further. uh, We talked to, you know, uh, Jeanette Sism, you know, and Jeanette was just an incredible lady still, you know, just just an incredible story about the things that she overcame, not only as a, you know, an African-American living in the segregated South, but as a woman entering a, a male-dominated field. You know, she told us a little bit about going to Alabama A&M University here in town as a mathematician, uh, you know, and the experience in the classroom there, you know, even, uh, you know, among, you know, African-Americans there, you know, why is a woman coming through this field? And then so she leaves that, she, she continues forward, comes and works in the, you know, the space sciences lab at, at NASA Marshall. So, you know, and, and just to, to hear her story all the way, and she was just a, a fierce advocate, obviously, for equal employment opportunities. She was a counselor. She was, she's, she's working with folks and sitting with them and, and trying to make sure that those gates, you know, stay open.
0: So how did uh, talking to these people and meeting these people and discovering these untold stories that most people don't know, how did that uh, sort of shape your view of NASA and and your worldview of of how civil rights sort of fits into things?
4: Yeah, you know, it really – you understand, as I mentioned, you know, you understand really the – the impact that that had on people's everyday lives. I mean, obviously, we understand that civil rights had a huge impact on the African-American community, the process of desegregation. But sometimes we don't think about it in these terms of, of education and, and moving into into different jobs that were closed before them. And so that research and talking to them led me in different directions with the research. It uh, led me back to Alabama A&M University. Uh, it led me to people who – uh, you know, Dr. Richard Morrison, who was the president of of Alabama A and M at the time, and it, and it makes you understand the the position that he found himself in as the president of a historically black college and university. There, Alabama A and M, you know the. Position he saw himself in as that sit-in movement was beginning. The previous president, uh, you know, Fanning Drake, had been basically fired for allowing the students to to participate in the sit-in movement downtown Huntsville by the Alabama state board that controls that position, Uh, and he'd been replaced by Richard Morrison, who you know, the state obviously there are certain expectations there of of how he will control students if they're going to give him this job. He appears he's going to be a moderate on civil rights, but. You know, he's also the one of the intellectual leaders of, of the civil rights movement here. So, how does he balance those two things? He's called in a very in a very uh, you know a difficult position because he's trying to transform what had been previously a university uh, developed and, and, and its goal was to train you know uh, black students for. Uh, these particular jobs that they'd filled in the past within the black community. Now there are these opportunities in the white community with with jobs, with technical jobs at, at NASA, at Redstone Arsenal. And he has to really invest a small amount of money to transform that university to begin to produce those candidates who can get those jobs. and I, And I thought, you know, you, you can you can read about things like that, but when you talk to people who followed that path, that, that people like Richard Morrison opened up, you know the Jeanette schisms of the world wouldn't have been possible. You know her path would have been different if not for Richard Morrison using this opportunity to really pry open those gates to you know to to this uh, to this new world that was before him.
0: So it's really interesting. That was really one of the most interesting aspects of, uh, as I was learning more about the civil rights movement and the connection uh, to its integration of NASA, was the effect that that had on historically black colleges and universities, including, like you said, Alabama A&M. So, and you've spoken on this a little bit, but tell us a little bit more about how the actual integration of NASA changed Alabama A&M, and what effects of that are we still seeing today uh, that students are still benefiting from?
4: Yeah, so from the very beginning in 1961, uh, President Kennedy issues an executive order that is in that executive order 10, 9, 25. It, It... you know, it's in March of '61, and what it says is that the the government will participate in in equal employment opportunity and with affirmative action. So it's not just that you don't have you you can't discriminate; you actually have to have programs of to develop these opportunities. Uh, and so, from '61 forward, you know, we really see that that leverage that 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 financial investment here, of the federal government and in NASA, really has because if President Morrison at A&M is going to really change that curriculum, those students are going to need opportunities that are that are available to them, where they would have been closed in the
0: past, you know, he, he came like from... Like it doesn't there. do any good to go through the curriculum if there's no end to that.
4: Yeah, I mean, these are, you know, you you, you go on a university campus, these are smart kids, right? Kid, you know, you, you get at that age and you're thinking about what am I going to do with my life, you know, what I'm am I going to do? here for fun. Yeah, yeah, this isn't fun. I mean, what am I going to do? This is hard work. And you think about STEM education, right? Math, engineering, all of these fields of sciences, hard sciences, you know, this is a difficult career path, you know, previously that had been closed to you what's the guarantee you have and and that's the other thing Morrison not only has to build it with limited resources but he has to convince students who are these are smart kids they grew up in segregated communities they know what the that the white you know what the white elite uh, establishment has prevented them from doing in the past what's to say it's going to be any different now so that's that's the risk that these students are taking uh, and in order to do that you know the other thing was this is the the faculty that, that he has to bring on. And one very important person was Howard Foster. Uh, Dr. Howard Foster, who'd worked at, you know, he'd worked, uh, he was an American University graduate. He has an incredible story in his own. But, he, you know, he's, uh, Morrison is able to convince this, this you know, highly, you know, uh, educated African-American doctor to move to the South to teach mathematics because of the presence of Oak Ridge nearby, Redstone Arsenal, NASA, and it's that decision and that 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 risk that even Howard Foster's taken. You know, he comes here and he's the guy who's going to build the physics program that is today one of the most you know the you know uh, just one of the greatest physics programs in in the country at Alabama A and M University, and so he's that he's that guy. And and I, you know, you talk about going to these in, in interviewing people and and hearing their. You know these, these people who went through that, James Jennings was somebody. He talks about Howard Foster. Uh, Michael Hartwell is another African-American who goes through that program. And it, they, they have these experiences of meeting Howard Foster in the hallway because Foster knows they're really smart kids. And he says, hey, would you like to join in this this physics department I'm creating? We got a minor, and eventually we have a major, and eventually it goes on in there. So. It's so intricate. But the opportunity that NASA, you know, because NASA is committed to equal employment opportunity and and these things begin to bear out in the form of cooperative education, you know, they have have these co-op experiences. James Jennings goes through that. Uh, So it, it begins to, in the mind of those young people who are going through those programs this opportunity begins to be more, you know, feel more real. This could really happen for me. And ultimately it does. Not that segregation, you know, that that discrimination goes away. Not that they still don't face that discrimination, you know, in that white environment. James Jennings told me about the first time he'd ever been in a white environment was the first day he started his co-op program at NASA, you know, so this is this is new, and, and you know, it's just they're brave individuals uh, that committed to do this.
0: And so today, students at Alabama A and M and other uh, HBCUs really do have a path, an insight, you know, a a, a goal, a, a way to apply what they are learning to an actual career because of these people who. Blazed that trail back then.
4: Definitely, they're trailblazers. You know, one of the one of the programs that comes along is a computer science program. the The other thing that NASA did was send some of its subject matter experts over to A and M to kind of help them jumpstart some programs. And you know, uh, Clyde Foster was one who goes to Alabama A and M, starts a computer science program over there, and that teaches a skill set to the students that so they can come in and go to, you know, they can come up uh, for a co-op spot uh, while they're working through their, through their program, working the computer lab at Marshall with these real-world skills that they're gaining, you know, back at the university. So that, yeah, you know, the, the, the career, the, the path that's blazed by folks like, you know, Jim Jennings, who's still in the community, uh, Jeanette Sism, who goes through this, this process, uh, you know, they, they definitely were real trailblazers.
0: We're talking with NASA's acting chief historian, Brian Odom here on the Public Radio Hour as part of our Black History Month programming. Uh, Brian, another really interesting thing about the civil rights movement uh, and the connection more specifically to NASA here in Huntsville was how the civil rights movement pitted Werner Von Braun against the support of segregation in Alabama and how his view and his stance and his actions that he took to demand some change helped leverage change across the entire state. So a lot of people may not know or think about the impact of Von Braun and his impact on civil rights. I mean, people still get caught up in the sort of very nuanced Nazi ties to his very deep past, but I think this aspect of his connection to the civil rights movement m- may get overlooked. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened, why he pushed so hard for it, and what was the result of his actions, him standing up to Governor Wallace and other people like that.
4: Yeah, that, that is an important point because, you know, most people are familiar with his past. Uh, you know, he comes over, he's a Nazi scientist as part of Project Paperclip, comes over uh, and then builds, you know, just this... Uh, Incredible program, uh, bringing that expertise to bear. But, yeah, the the other side of the coin was he becomes the center. You know, he's the first center director at Marshall, as as most of people out there know. Uh, But he's when the civil rights movement comes along, he's also in a very unique situation, a very difficult, not as difficult as what Morrison was facing. But as the head of a federal facility in the segregated South, he has to kind of walk a walk a tight line there as well. Um, but you know the the writing Being has is politicians on one side. He has part of his workforce maybe on one side. Yeah, he has. You know, he has a number one goal for him is to get to the moon. You know, he's got to lead the center that's going to develop the Saturn V that's going to get us to the moon. Are there Achilles heels for that? And so he's looking around. What's Is there anything out there that could stop this program from being successful? Well, in the South, it was segregation. And the, the continued, you know, the fight against desegregation from folks like George Wallace, who is, you know, obviously, as you know, when he's inaugurated, is, you know, segregation now and forever, you know. Uh, and so it, it pits him against that. But, he, you know, Von Brown takes that as a challenge of like this is the thing this is a weakness for us uh, this is that you know uh, this could be problematic what do I need to do well he's given the tools and he says you know we've got to be committed to affirmative action uh, we we can't risk that uh, James Webb who's the NASA administrator at the time actually comes to Huntsville at one point and says you know. You guys it's getting hard for me to convince anybody to move to Alabama because they turn on the TV and every day they see you know fire hoses in Birmingham police dogs they see you know just a continued racial strife of, of this area and and no one, African-Americans or, you know, or anyone will move here to help me manage these contracts and get this, get us to the moon. Uh, and so Van Brown is, is committed. OK, well, what do I need to do? Well, w- well, if if you guys don't get in line here in Huntsville, Alabama, we'll move this program somewhere else. I can manage contracts from New Orleans. I can manage them from California. It doesn't have to be here. And that's the leverage, right? That's the risk and that's the leverage. So the, you know, uh, you know, von Brown, he says, you know, with when it comes to equal employment opportunity, I'm going to be a spokesman for it because, you know, it's not only the federal government, it's these contractors. You know, you ride through research park every day and this applied to them if they didn't meet the expectations of of equal employment. And by 1964, the summer of 64, when you get the Civil Rights Act, if you guys don't meet this, you lose those contracts. That would be a problem in the path to the moon so what does von brown do so he does speak out uh what's his relationship like with george wallace distant you know george wallace comes in 1965 obviously wallace knows it's an economic in his economic interest to keep the center here uh he comes in 1965 for a visit and they give him a tour a little bit you know he meets with von brown and james webb and you know, and they asked the, the media ask, uh, Wallace how is ask you know, Wallace how everything was going. And he said, uh, Well, they, they asked him if, he, if he'd like to go to the moon. And he said, Well, I don't think you fellas would bring me back. You know, and so that, that, that really gives you a sense of, of what that hostility behind the scenes was. The other thing that Von Brown does is he, you know, he talks, uh, he, he goes to Miles College in 19, November of 1964. He's asked to go down and speak. Now, what's the event that's happening? They're breaking ground at Miles College and HBCU on a new science facility that will, again, like what Morrison was doing, open these doors for the students that go through that program. Von Brown goes down and gives a, gives a speech, right, talking about that, the new opportunity that's available to everyone and, and how he's committed to it and and so you do get that commitment from from brown it is it is kind of a it's a duality right we we think of him as you know there's there's nothing more white supremacy than nazism right but you have von brown at the head of marshall space flight center you know speaking out in terms of uh, of civil rights and it's it's you. It it is useful. It uh, you know, it does play a role. I mean, let's think about desegregation process in September of 1963. The first African American child, you know, Sonny Hereford the fourth, to attend a previously segregated school in Alabama. Uh, that happened in Huntsville. It didn't happen in other places because Wallace blocked it. You know, it. So so there is there. It's a very unique environment here for that.
0: And a quick aside, and I only bring this up because. Uh, on a recent episode of fresh air a professor came on and admonished people in huntsville for some reason for mispronouncing von Braun, as and she insists that it is von Braun. So as, as a NASA historian, can you just really quickly clarify, von Braun versus von Braun, what do we do here?
4: It is Braun, and we, we know that, it's von Braun, you know, uh, you'll, you'll still see the, the, the von Braun center, right? Uh, you know, people call it that all the time, but his name was von Braun. How do we know that? He told us so, right? People would ask him that question, is it Braun, is it Braun? Uh, the other thing I've talked to his daughter, and she's she's also you know yeah that's what our name the way we pronounce our name. So if you disagree with the guy who it's actually his name, <laughs> you know I, I, you're fighting an uphill battle at that point.
0: Back to the 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 topic of civil rights and the connection uh, to NASA. You mentioned earlier in our conversation about meeting all these people who uh, have stories and deep connections and experiences. Uh, that most people don't know about. So if we could close here by maybe talking about uh, your experience uh, as a historian in finding those untold stories and saving those untold stories so that people don't forget these critical elements of our history.
4: I would say as you know, as a public historian, oral histories are really the way to go about this. And that's exactly what, what you do, right? I mean, you know, you have that experience as well of, of sitting down, letting people talk, let them add their own voice. Because, you know, we're not giving voice to the voiceless. Everyone has a voice. And that's that's a you know, that's something to remember is and and we need to let people talk. We need to Talk to people about their experience and let them go on record. And then we, what we do when we do that is we add complexity. We add complexity to the past and we get closer to a, a more unified identity that takes all of these different experiences in. And so I think that's why it's highly valuable to do that.
0: A big thanks to NASA's Acting Chief Historian, Dr. Brian Odom. The book he co-edited, along with Dr. Stephen Waring, who chairs the UAH Department of History, is titled NASA and the Long Civil Rights Movement and will be available in paperback beginning in April. Dr. Odom also helped produce the WLRH documentary, One Giant Leap, How the Integration of NASA Helped Mankind Reach the Moon. You can find a link to One Giant Leap on the podcast page for this episode of the Public Radio Hour at WLRH.org. Also a big thanks to Dr. Beth Paulton with Rocket City Civil Rights, Donna Castellano with Historic Huntsville Foundation, and producer Katie Ganaway for contributing to this show. And thanks to you for listening and supporting Huntsville Public Radio to make our original content possible. Be safe, and we'll talk to you next time.